You're listening to Coffee House Questions with Ryan Pauly. And joining me for part two this week is Alan Schleeman from Stand to Reason. Alan, thanks again for joining me. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Ryan. Thanks a lot. And if you guys missed it, last week, Alan and I talked about uh, ch- homosexuality, truth, and compassion. And we spent most of the time talking about the truth behind uh, homosexuality. What does scripture, sh- scripture say? Uh, what does some of the scientific discoveries say? And so I'd really encourage you guys to go back um, and look, uh, listen to that episode. Um, and then to remind you, too, uh, what we were talking about comes out of uh, the book uh, by Sean McDowell, Apologetics for New Generation, where you can find that book on Amazon or uh, find the article on uh, str.org, which I, I've posted to uh, tra- uh, coffeehousequestions.com. Uh, but I want to continue. We weren't able to wrap up our discussion uh, on the compassion part, on how to respond compassionately uh, to those friends and family members um, that identify as um, homosexual and so I want to kind of go back in um, to what we were saying. And so we left off last week uh, talking about how we, the kind of the first response is that treat homosexuals the way you would anyone else. Uh, that there's no reason that we need to treat them differently than we would any other friends. Uh, how, maybe we didn't bring this one up uh, last week, how should the church respond? Uh, if someone comes into the church that is either one by themselves or maybe they bring their partner in with them and how should the church respond in those situations yeah um i'd say there's a couple of things number one i think we need to make sure that we welcome people who self-identify as gay and lesbian and when i say welcome them to the church i don't mean let them in the door but i mean make them feel welcome like Hmm. show them the best seat in the house um introduce them to the pastor uh, invite them to the next uh, concert or barbecue you're having. Because after all, we want to encourage people who identify as gay or lesbian or any non-Christians to come into the church and to hear what is being preached from the pulpit, to experience genuine uh, Christian love and fellowship, and, and to hear uh, and to be you know to understand what that really is like. You know, so um, we would do this with any non-Christian. I don't see why we wouldn't do that with with uh, people who identify as gay and lesbian. So. Uh, definitely, number one, we should welcome them. Or, and by welcome them, I mean make them feel welcome. Yeah. Now, the, the flip side of that is we need to be, be aware also that that does not mean we allow them to engage in church fellow – I'm sorry, in church leadership if they are practicing homosexuals. Okay. So church leadership must be off limits to any practicing homosexuals. But notice that's not a unique rule that we create just for homosexuals. Mm-hmm. That applies to anyone engaged in ongoing unrepentant sin and this is the clear teaching of scripture if your pastor or elder or worship leader or youth pastor is engaged in any kind of ongoing unrepentant sin they should also be removed from church leadership okay Okay. so while we welcome people who identify as gay and lesbian if they're practicing homosexuals we don't let them engage in or participate in church leadership Um, when it comes to Believers who have same-sex attraction but who follow the commands of Christ in the Bible, meaning they might be same-sex attracted, but they are actually living obediently to what Scripture says, meaning they don't think lustfully about those same-sex attraction thoughts, nor do they engage in uh, homosexual sex, but are just living a celibate you know, life or they're just trying to obey the commands of Scripture. These people, these Christians – should be treated exactly like any other Christian. And the reason is because they are. 
just yeah. like any other Christian. They are no different than you and me or any other believer who struggles with sin. Sometimes we fall, but we are repentant about it. We get up and we say, man, I was wrong. I confess it. And we try to live obediently to the commands of Christ. Yeah. So for believers who experience same-sex attraction but are obedient to, to, to Scripture, no, we should treat them like anybody else. And those people can take up leadership in the church. Yeah. So those are just three quick principles that I think are – help for the church yeah, those are good principles um i forgot to mention this at the beginning but for those of you listening that if if anything discussed here brings up any comments or questions uh you can go to str.org find more information uh with alan there with the speaker with stand to reason uh you can also go to coffeehousequestions.com uh contact at coffeehousequestions is the email you can send in your questions or on facebook at coffeehouse questions facebook page twitter uh, or the google voice text message number at 714-989-69 uh, two seven. So that's where you can contact and, and, and comment on the show today. Um, and so kind of back to the topic, uh, finishing up with kind of the, the discussion on homosexuality, truth and compassion. So the first compassionate response is to treat them like anyone else. Mm-hmm. The second response that you give in order to be hold the truth, but yet come from a place of compassion is do not make the gospel more difficult than it already is. Uh, the gospel is a very difficult thing to talk about you're you're telling someone that they're broken um you know that that we are sinful that we have something wrong with us and we need to be fixed and we don't need to make it more difficult than it already is yeah so one of the ways we we capture that at standard reason we say this the gospel is offensive enough don't add any more offense to it yeah <laughs> in other words like you said it's already hard enough to get people to accept that they're a sinner guilty and deserving to be punished um but so that alone is offensive. But sometimes we do things, we add to the offense by being crass or condescending hmm. or harsh or, or just, just being a plain jerk. you know. And so that, that makes it even harder by uh, our own sort of unwinsome character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the first way that you say that we shouldn't make it more difficult is you talk about how we should stop saying that Christians are anti-homosexual and you make a distinction – uh, between uh, being anti-homosexual um, and being uh, against homosexual behavior. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, it's just, just, basi- just basically, you know, the, the culture likes to call us anti-homosexual. And what that and, – and sometimes Christians use the same language. But what that sounds like is that we're against the person. We're against the person who identifies as gay or lesbian or bisexual, transgender, which is not the case at all. Scripture is, is crystal clear – that we are to love all human beings, and there's no human being out there that is our enemy. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people are also made in God's image, uh, are intrinsically valuable, and deserving of dignity and respect. And so therefore, there is no place for degrading behavior or, of course, joking about these people because they are they are literally the pinnacle of God's creation, just like everybody else. So we are never against homosexuals. We might be um, – we. What we recognize, though, is that the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is a sin. And so, yeah, in that sense, yeah, the, we ex, we accept what Scripture says about that. Yeah, Scripture says that that kind of behavior is sin. But guess what? Scripture teaches that all types of sexual behavior, apart from a married man and woman, is sin. Yeah. So in reality, there's nothing unique about homosexuals. They don't – they're not uh, you know, under any kind of special condemnation. There's nothing special about them. In fact, there's far more heterosexuals engaged in sexual sin than there are homosexuals. Yeah. 
So, so there's no sense in which the word anti-homosexual really um, is, represents what we as Christians believe. We're not against the person. We just accept what Scripture teaches, and that is that certain forms of sexual activity are sin. Fornication, rape, homosexuality, uh, adultery, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And that goes on to another one of your points on how to respond is you say don't treat homosexual behavior as the most detestable crime against God. That's right, because Scripture doesn't teach that. I mean, yeah. there, there's no there's no indication in Scripture that that homosexual sex is somehow the supreme abomination, the unpardonable crime against God. In fact, every time we see it mentioned, it's listed amongst many other sins, um, and there's no indication that it's the worst sin. Now, the only qualification I'd make here is that in First Corinthians, I believe it's six, maybe verse eighteen, but it's definitely First Corinthians six. The Apostle Paul identifies sexual sins as those sins committed against the body, and he says all non-sexual sins are committed outside the body. And of course, because homosexuality is a sexual sin, it is put into this unique category of a sin committed against the body. Hmm. But even then, there's no indication that it's the worst of all yeah. sexual sins. So. Yeah. And so, absolutely. And so we'll have to, uh, you know, for those, we're going to have to skip a couple of these points on, on how to respond. And, and I just want to encourage anyone listening to go on to str.org, search Homosexuality, Truth, and Compassion to read the complete response or get Sean McDowell's book, Apologetics for a New Generation. Uh, but the last point I want to hit before moving on to transgender, uh, truth and compassion is what if someone then responds, you know, yes, it's, it's not worse than any other sin. But, you know, God, you know, we're not against the homosexual or against the behavior. And so we're going to say God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Yeah, I know this is a very <laughs> uh, popular phrase amongst Christians. And to, to Christians, this sounds biblically consistent and it sounds compassionate. But but here's the problem. When I've talked to my friends and family who identify as gay and lesbian, when they tell me they hear Christians say this, they tell me, Alan, we cannot process this statement. Okay, because because keep in mind, in their mind, in the mind of the gay or lesbian person, being gay is not just what they do. It's who they are. And so if God hates the sin but loves the sinner, the only word that they hear in that whole sentence is hate. They hear God hates them. And guess what? You as a Christian also hate them, too. Hmm. And so so actually that that phrase has the opposite effect that you intend. And so here's my suggestion. If you want your friend or family member who identifies as LGBT to believe that, um, that God loves them despite what they're doing, here's how you do it. Don't say something, but rather do something. And that is love them. Like have love be the action that communicates that message. And by loving them, I mean treat them as you would any other friend or family member. Hang out with them. Go to the movies with them. You know, study for the SAT with them. Whatever you do with your non-Christian friends, do it with them as well. Hmm, yeah. And that'll communicate that because you're a Christian and that you're spending time with them, that you love them. And since you're a Christian and you're an ambassador for Jesus and are a spokesperson for God, that will also communicate that God loves them as well, despite the fact that what they're doing. And so that's why I say try to avoid cliches like that, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, God loves the sinner but hates the sin or, or things like that. But try to communicate these principles by the way you behave towards them, by showing them love. Yeah. 
And yeah, absolutely. And so the last point that you make, and and this will kind of transition us into the second topic, because you know we are short on time. This is one of those things that. I mean, I guess when you do presentations, you said this is the number one thing you talk about. People want to have this discussed, and we could probably talk about it the whole time. But I also want to kind of get uh, a response and some tactics for those also dealing with uh, the transgender issue. Uh, but I think this last point applies to both uh, situations, is that you say it's it's about a long-term difference, not a short-term statement. Yeah, I, this kind of goes back to what we were just saying in the previous comment there about a lot of times Christians are resorting to these corny cliches, these short-term statements. Hey, God loves a sin. I'm sorry, God hates a sin but loves a sinner. Or, um, you know, don't you know homosexuality is sin? You know, and these little like j like verbal jabs that we want to throw in there, thinking that those little cliches that we say are going to make some sort of a an impact. And all they typically do is they build walls between us and them. And so this idea of you know, try to think long-term. Try to think, how can you make a long-term difference, not a short-term statement? Yeah. The point of this is to think, okay, how can I have a lasting impact in this person's life? How can I have a long-term relationship that might last 5, 10, 20, 30 years so that through that long-term relationship, I can have a lasting impact in their, in their life by my behavior, by my compassion, by my love, by the truth I com you know, communicate, by telling them about the gospel, whatever it might be. You know? And I, I found that every time I've had a, an impact in the life of a man or a woman who identifies as gay and lesbian, it's because I first nurtured a long-term friendship and relationship with them, and then they trusted me with all kinds of personal insight into their own lives, maybe even, you know, even at times asked me, hey, you know what? You're different than other Christians. I'm willing to listen to you. Tell me, what, what church should I go to if I want to check it out? Hmm. And that's only been possible because I've nurtured a long-term friendship uh, hmm. and, and tried to make a long-term difference and not resorted to just simply, hey, hey, I want you to know being gay is a sin. Don't forget that. You know, It's like, why are you doing that? <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that with our other non-Christian friends. Yeah. Why do we try to do that with our, our friends who are LGBT? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and we have to understand, and you know, I think a lot of times we we just act differently. You know, it's we have this idea, and so we get around and we act differently. It's like, why are we doing this? Why can't we be friends? Why can't we just be normal? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so okay, so kind of changing a little topics a little bit, staying on the LGBT issue. Um, we have about 15 minutes left, so we'll have to make this one a little bit quicker. Uh, but on the topic of transgender. Um, kind of at the more fundamental level, you give the same type of response. And again, we won't be able to get through uh, most of this, but this article uh, that you wrote comes out of another one of Sean McDowell's books, uh, his newest one called A New Kind of Apologist. Um, and you mentioned that this article as well is is available at str.org as well? Yeah, you get the whole chapter is made for free on our website, str.org. Okay, know? so I'd encourage you to go go read it there, but kind of I would pull out a few highlights uh, or kind of important issues from this. You you create the same sort of response. Uh, you call it the same thing, transgender truth and compassion. The same thing, we have to know the truth, and then we have to have a compassionate response. And so quickly, kind of the, the truth behind transgender uh, debate. Um, what is... The transgender debate about uh, when it comes to the difference between sex and gender identity. Yeah, so the person who identifies as transgender is a person who has a biological sex that is uh, incongruent with their perceived gender identity, and so gender identity is merely a um, 
a belief about what gender you are, either male or female, or in in in, in today's world, uh, any one of a possible number of, of 20 other possible genders. Okay, so if I'm biologically male, but I believe my gender is female, then I am transgender. You know, I might say. I have a male body, but I'm a woman trapped inside a male body. You know, and this is, of course, uh, Bruce Jenner is a is a prime example of of a person like that who um, has a male body. You know, obviously he competed in the Olympics as a male athlete, and now he's uh, undergoing or has completed, I'm not sure to what degree, a sort of quote unquote gender reassignment surgery, or uh, you know, and gotten hormones and now presents himself as a woman because he believes his gender identity is female even though his biological sex is male. Okay. And so one thing I was curious, have kind of first, have you seen the videos um, from the Family Policy Institute of Washington on gender identity and uh, where the guy does the street interviews with the college students on YouTube? No, I, uh, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Um, very interesting. I showed my classes, but they, they say a few things like, you know, that, you know, gender uh, gender is just a social construct, in fact, these students even go so far to say he asked them the question, uh, how can or can we tell a difference between male and female? And they say, no, there's no way we can tell the difference. Um, well, but, but see, OK, I'm sorry. Well, no, no, go. <laughs> I was just going to respond. I mean, even even scientists who study this question don't even teach that. I mean, the perception is that science is on their side on this question, but this is complete fantasy. So uh, Johns Hopkins University, which is a secular university, a secular medical hospital university, um, was the one who pioneered uh, sex reassignment surgery. And uh, for many years, they were taking these boys who were born what they call intersex, which means that their, their male genitals were not fully developed and there was some ambiguity as to whether they're male or female. And so because they didn't have a fully, fully normal-looking male genitals, the doctors would resect their male genitals or what was left, tell the parents to raise the child uh, as, a, as a girl, give them a girl name, dress them up as a girl, and even do some plastic surgery to make them look female kind of in the pelvic region. And, and, and then since gender is a social construction, like you were just saying, mm -hmm. therefore these kids will grow up and just be girls. But what happened in the follow-up studies was that these kids were expressing typical male behaviors. They were um, engaged in more rough and tumble type of temperaments and, and, and play. They were attracted to girls. And then when they discovered they were genetically male, they became upset and tried to return to adopt a male gender identity. Hmm. In fact, I even have a friend who was born intersex without any male genital and was raised as a female and when he reached high school, he of course he was told he was a female. He thought he was a lesbian because he was attracted to girls. He joined the gay and lesbian club in high school. And then when he found out that he was actually a male, he said, "What?" And so he tried to re return back to becoming and identifying as a man. Wow. So this idea that it's just a social construction is a complete myth. It's completely contrary to science. Yeah. And by the way, if you're biologically XY chromosome, which is what a male is, those XY chromosomes trigger certain hormonal responses in utero while you're still in your mother's womb that creates the brain to be a certain way that is very male typical. I mean the corpus callosum, which is a structure in the brain, um, kind of um, – it atrophies in a male, but it doesn't atrophy in a female brain. 
And so we are even literally sexualized differently in utero, biologically. So to say it's merely a social construction just flies in the face of everything that we know about science yeah. amongst, you know, and that's just one example, but there's many others. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. So it's good to kind of identify the difference between, you know, and, and respond to some of those objections that come up and it's just a social construct. Um, when we do respond um, kind of in that compassionate way, um, I just want to say, and you can respond to this and kind of add on, uh, Christians need to be careful uh, of how they respond and the way they, you know, no joking and that sort of stuff, because there is a serious issue going on here. And I think that that comes out, and, and I've seen this other places, and I see it here in your article, that sadly it says 41% of transgender uh, people have attempted suicide compared to 1.6% in the general population. Yeah, that, I mean, see, this this goes to this broader point that addresses both homosexuality and transgenderism, and that is once you learn the truth about what these people are experiencing, the truth should drive us to have compassion for these men and women who identify as LGBT. Now, we didn't talk about some of the all the other truth aspects, if you will, about homosexuality and even with transgenderism. I know we don't have time. But once you learn the truth about what many of these people are experiencing, the health risks they face as a result of their behavior, the surgeries they try to perform as a result of being transgender, the attempted suicide rates, as you just mentioned, once we've discovered this, this should drive us to have compassion for men and women who are, are who are experiencing this because they're 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 confused they're hurting they're they're de depressed they're they have all kinds of conditions yeah. and as christians we are the ones who are most justified in in loving them in reaching out to them in caring for them and having compassion for them yeah so yeah the attempted suicide rate is just one example of when you know that truth when you realize how confused i mean just imagine if you're in a male body but you think you're a female yeah how distressing that would be Man, that should have us. That should create and evoke in us so much compassion yeah. for these people who are wrestling with that. Absolutely, I completely agree. It's just it's heartbreaking that we have to have some sort of response and really come just in a compassionate way, like you say in this article. Um, kind of finishing up this this idea of know the truth. Um, what if someone kind of says, well, you know, Scripture doesn't talk about transgender issues. It's not, you know, the Bible doesn't does, the Bible doesn't use that word. Well, yeah, that's true. It, it doesn't use a lot of words. I don't think it, the word incarnation is even in the Bible. But uh, the question isn't is the word in there. The question is what does the Bible teach about the 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 topics pertaining to transgenderism? And the Bible is really clear on a couple of points. One is the Bible is clear that God made human beings in only two sexes, male and female. Okay, there is no um, other. Um, there, you know. Uh, there's no uh, spectrum in between. We see scripture teach that there's only males and females and that these males and females are supposed to follow the gender identity that is designated by their biological sex. That's why it commands that males and females leave their mothers and fathers and be united to their spouses and the two, the husband and the wife, the male and the female, shall become one flesh. The only way that's possible to fulfill that that one flesh union is to follow the gender complementarity that's um, indicated by Scripture. So, in, in the one sense, I'd say the Bible is pretty clear that we're supposed to, we're born male and female, and we're supposed to follow the male 
female gender identities designated by our biology. But we also see prohibitions against violating that gender identity. So, for example, uh, I believe it's Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have the reference in, my, um, in front of me here. But in Deuteronomy 22, 5, I think it is, it says, if you're a man, you're not supposed to dress up as a female and appear as a female. And if you're a woman, you shouldn't be dressing up as a, as a man. You know, And so um, it's saying, look, if you're biologically male, you are not to present yourself as a female and vice versa. So we even see a prohibition against you know, cross-dressing as a way to come across as a gender identity that is different than your biological sex. Hmm. Now, this is not to be confused with, you know, uh, in other words, I'm not saying the Bible says that if you're a man, you have to follow all the gender gender typical activities that are that boys do. In other words, if you're a boy and you're not interested in you know video games and playing football and blowing things up and starting things on fire, that's okay. You know, it's okay if you'd rather play the flute or do ballet or you know you know watch a chick flick. That's okay. It doesn't. What it's talking about is is identifying as a particular gender. You know. And do you think that that is one of the driving kind of forces in our culture of just, hey, if you don't kind of follow the typical either male or female stereotypes as a child, then we just kind of label the person as you must be transgender or, or, or you know, homosexual or something like that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I just know that there – I'm not sure if that's a temptation by what culture is doing. I, I just think that sometimes, yes, there is a sense in which if a if a boy – engages in a gender uh, gender nonconformity. Well, I don't want to say gender nonconformity. Let me just say this. If, we, if a boy behaves in a way that's not typical of their gender, then we might think, oh, something's wrong. Are they gay? Are they transgender? And I'm just saying, look, it's okay if we if a boy doesn't do all those things. you know. Yeah. And if a girl, for example, if she doesn't care about Taylor Swift and she doesn't like chick flicks, but she'd rather just go in the, in the, in the garage with dad and work on a car, it's totally fine. So I'm not saying we have to follow gender-typical activities. What I'm saying and what I believe Scripture is saying is that we have to identify as the gender designated by our biology. And by the way, I would say also 1 Corinthians 6.9 also makes the case in the New Testament where it says um, neither fornicators nor idolaters nor homosexuals nor effeminate. And the Greek word for effeminate there is malakoi, which means soft soft ones, the soft men who would try to appear as females by changing their dress or their jewelry or makeup or even castrating themselves. So so you have both Old and New Testament indications that engaging in a gender identity that is different than your biology is considered to be sin or prohibited. Okay, yeah. So I think the Bible does address enough to make this point clear. Yeah. So we got about three minutes left, uh, and so we're kind of running short on the response. But I, I, what I've noticed in, in reading both of these uh, articles that you wrote is that the response for in the homosexuality, truth, and compassion is very similar uh, to transgender, truth, and compassion. And so I would just encourage everyone, you know, go back, listen to last week, find the podcast, read the articles, and, and, and to get that response. Uh, but just quickly, you know, if they didn't, Kind of your first response is you say, you know, never compromise bi- biblical truth to go along with cultural trends um, and that we first need to make relationship with transgender people a top priority. Yeah, I mean, relationships are the bridge by which we can uh, communicate truth, show compassion, tell people the gospel. 
And so that's why I say make your relationship with your transgender or LGBT person a high priority. Doesn't yeah. mean it's a top priority. Obviously, your relationship with God and your immediate family is the, is, is the top priorities. But make it a high priority because it's through your relationship that you can have an influence in their lives. Yeah. And, you know, if you're not close to them, you know, they, they might hear you. But, you know, are you really you, – you mentioned, are you the right person to speak into their lives? And, you know, I think of students. When students are close to me, then I have that ability to speak in a way that the students that don't trust me or, or that sort of thing. Um, but And I want to finish here with I think should be the focus of apologetics, and that is focus on the gospel. Too many times people think with apologetics it's about winning arguments or just presenting reasons, but really the goal is to focus on the gospel, and you finish in the same way with this issue of – Focusing on the gospel. Yeah, I mean, just like with homosexuals, our hope for them is not heterosexuality but holiness. In the same way with transgender people, our 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 hope for transgender people is not to experience a change in their gender identity, but rather in their spiritual identity. So ultimately, what we want for them is to become Christians, you know. And that's why I say we should focus on the gospel. That's what matters more than anything. Yeah, if they become a Christian, then as I said earlier or in the previous podcast, and then the Holy Spirit comes into their life and then transforms them from the inside out. Yeah. And that's the true transformation that we really long for, for not just our transgender friends and family, but for all non-believers. Yep. You know? And that's only possible through, uh, of course, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, which, as you said, is the whole focus of apologetics. Absolutely. Well, Alan, this conversation has been incredible. I hope that for those that were listening, that this intrigued them, that they this brought up maybe some more questions and just really gave them a practical way to respond and to love people uh, and treat them uh, with compassion, but not compromising the truth. And so, Alan, I just want to thank you so much again for taking this time uh, with me these two weeks uh, or the one hour that recording <laughs> and uh, discussing these issues with me. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, were willing to tackle the subject. Yeah, and I just uh, pray the best for you as you continue on in your work with uh, Stand to Reason. And I want to encourage everyone to uh, follow Alan uh, on online. On you're on Twitter uh, on str.org. Check out his writing and the things that he's doing and all the events that STR puts on. Just you guys are doing incredible work, and I appreciate your ministry and really look up to you guys. No, thanks, Ryan. We, pre- we appreciate your partnership too. So awesome. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. All right, you too. Take care. Okay, bye. Won't hesitate to follow your love will God.